The content here is for informational purposes only and should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice or be used to evaluate any investment or security and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any Redpoint Ventures fund. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Zoe Tang. Today, I have the pleasure of talking to Urvashi Barua, principal at Redpoint Ventures. Founded in 1999, Redpoint has backed some of the biggest fintechs in the world, including Stripe, Newbank, Ramp, and others. As a fellow Wharton alum, Urvashi comes from a multicultural background, spanning India, China, and Hong Kong. She started her career in consulting at firms such as Ernest Yang and then at BCG. In today's episode, we discuss Urvashi's life story, her journey to venture capital, and the areas she's excited about. So without further ado, let's dive into today's episode. Hi, Urvashi. Welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. Hi, Zoe. Thanks for having me. Of course, it's great to have an Wharton alum on our show. Um, so just to start with, I know you come from a multinational background. You grew up in India, lived in China and Hong Kong, and now you moved to U.S. for college and then work. Um, I mean, I'm just intrigued that coming from all these like diverse past experiences, what would you say is like, like some of the most important pivotal or like instrumental moments in your life and why? I love it. We're getting right to the meat of it. Um <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I'm actually from India. So I grew up there and uh, lived there for most of my life. I left India when I was uh, in high school to go to high school in Hong Kong. I went to this really international school where I went to school with about uh, people from 70 different countries, which was a really eye-opening experience for me and helped open my mind up uh, globally. And then I came to the U.S. for college where I, I've been ever since. So that's kind of my, the trajectory of my life. I would say the most pivotal moments for me, the first probably would be uh, my upbringing in India and es especially watching my my parents who are both entrepreneurs in India. My uh, father has a uh, chemicals and uh, industrial gas manufacturing business and my mother, she uh, designs and sells her own furniture. So just growing up, I was surrounded by entrepreneurship, whether it was uh, at home because my, my mom's workshop and her carpenters were all over the house uh, and you could hear them working away all day or it was at dinner when, you know, my dad would talk about the, the problems that he'd faced at work that day. And I think the most pivotal lesson I took away from that is just watching them every day, uh, the, the things that they have to go through to keep their companies alive. So uh, two examples that come to mind, um, one is, you know, in India, we the concept of, of land rights is uh, is very loose. And so um, my father has factories in very remote parts of Assam. And uh, one of the times I remember the the people in the village uh, were wanted to come and kind of take over the land and they wanted to uh, they, they didn't want the factory to be set up there. And so even things such as like claiming the land that you've already bought and uh, ensuring the value of your contracts is not a given. And I saw him struggle with things like that or even um we used to have a lot of insurgency in assam where i'm from and uh they there would be these things called buns when the government would shut everything down for for one day and um i remember my dad would often defy these buns and keep the office open uh even when there was a bun and so 
his car they would like his car would get pelted by stones as he was going to the office and these are the kinds of odds that that you know i saw my parents work through as as a child to build and grow their companies and provide for all the people that they employed and to me i relate that back to what i see uh when i partner with founders uh, today when you know you lose you lose a really key person on the team or a customer decides to drop out or uh you know google launches a feature that could be an existential threat for your business i see these founders going through battles like that on an everyday basis and i i draw inspiration from from what i saw from my parents and and the kind of tenacity and grit it took to run and um to run a business back in india where i'm from so that was probably a really pivotal uh moment for me not a moment specifically but just uh it helped shape my perspectives for uh till much later in life um the other one probably was coming to warden because uh you know i uh so i i, I graduated warden in 2020 uh with my mba and uh before that i had thought that I wanted to be close to founders and I wanted to get on the investing side, but um, I really was able to shape that path once I got to Wharton. Uh, and so finding uh, finding my way into venture was also also very pivotal and I, I credit my time at Wharton with that. So those are probably two real pivotal moments so far. Both like tying back to the entrepreneurship community and actually, um, and then the, like, the day-to-day problems faced by our parents like it sounds like so real and then like it's just fascinating were you like ever helping them with their um kind of startup businesses or were you more kind of an observer i was probably more there for moral support uh i i would help my mom on things like marketing and helping her uh especially get the online side of thinking helping her think through like how to create an online presence for for her company but uh with a lot of these things, I was more of an observer, and uh, we did spend a lot of time talking about the problems they faced at work uh, around the dinner table. So I did. I think I I picked up um, uh, like a business judgment and a sense for what it takes to run a company and the decisions that you make from having these conversations with my parents. But I I was I would I have to say I was more of an observer than really helping in any any real way. Gotcha, gotcha. It sounds like very similar to like your current role, kind of you started to advising startup founders early on in your life. Um, and then you mentioned like at Wharton, you double down like in venture capital. Um, and I know like you worked on several funds as well. Um, many of our listeners are actually MBAs trying to break into venture. And I'm sure I, they will really appreciate your advice. So wondering like, how did you really approach this process of pivoting? And then how did you make yourself a differentiated from the other candidates? Yeah, so when I came to Wharton, uh, the, my most recent work experience was uh, as a consultant. I had been working at uh, Boston Consulting Group and I had started my career at Ernst & Young. Um, and throughout, I'd been advising Fortune 500 companies on you know, growth, M&A, product, pricing, etc. But on the side, I had always been working with uh, my friends who are just starting their own companies or uh, even in volunteer organizations doing pro bono consulting for for startups. So I'd always had an itch and, a, and an attraction towards early stage uh, companies and founders trying to make their businesses. Um, so that was the, I came into Warden with the idea that I wanted to try something here. And I think that's, that's probably the first lesson is business school and an MBA can be a really enriching experience, but it also can be a very confusing time because you're getting pulled in so many different directions. 
Uh, and it really helps to to come in with uh, an idea of of what you want to do and how you want to spend your time while you're there. So that was the first thing I I, I had. And then uh, in terms of uh, you know getting getting into venture, I I think the two things that I learned through the process was one that you kind of have to be doing the venture job already to get a job in venture, which is really unfair. But uh, I think you have to show this appreciation for startups and show that you're uh, informed about what's going on in the tech world and you have the right networks or at least you're able to break in and that you can think about companies. Uh, So, and the way you can do that is probably by doing work that's similar to what we do at a venture fund, which is, you know, uh, finding companies that are interesting and should be that uh, finding companies or spaces that are interesting, developing a point of view on them, and then uh, chatting and getting inroads into into the most exciting companies in that space. And there's a lot of that that you can do as an MBA. You don't have to be uh, in this particular seat to be doing those things. Um, so that's the first uh, thing. And then the second thing I would say is, which is a little bit counterintuitive, but um, someone told me this when I was at Warden and I really appreciate his advice now is uh, if you want to break into VC, you probably have to be spending more time with founders than with VCs. I was spending you know, a lot of time trying to network with other VCs and trying to get to know people and break in. But really, like if you the, what you should be spending your time on is getting to know founders. And there are so many amazing companies that are getting started out of Wharton, out of Penn, or even in the broader ecosystem that you're from. Maybe if you work at some tech company before Wharton, maybe there's a lot of uh, founders coming out of that company. So I think f- finding a way to get really ingrained into the founder community and um, yes, thinking, how, learning how they think, figuring out how you can be helpful to them will automatically get you noticed by, by VCs. That is super helpful advice. When I started my MBA at Wharton, I definitely wish I had 48 hours instead of 24 because there are just so many exciting things happening and they're all amazing opportunities. So I am sure our audience will really appreciate advice just given that. And then you started at Redpoint Ventures right after Wharton in the middle of pandemic in 2020. Uh, Your primary focus is on early stage side. There are different schools of thoughts when it comes to early stage investing. Some care about the founders, some care more about ideas. Curious to hear more around what is your investment philosophy? Yeah, I mean, that's something that I'm still honing, I would say, because I'm still probably fairly early in my career. Um, There are a few things that we care about a lot when looking at a company, and they're probably fairly obvious. Uh, The first is the the team, because ultimately we want to work with uh, founders that have some unique point of view on um on the space that they're going after and and starting a company as we discussed earlier is kind of like chewing class so we have we know we want to know that they have the tenacity the drive and the ambition to to build something big and to keep going at it when uh they keep getting faced by by failure so i think team is probably the most important thing at at early stage the second thing that uh, that we look for is evidence that there is a big market here and a big problem to be solved and if all goes well, that there is a billion-dollar opportunity or multi-billion-dollar opportunity that um, that they're going after. Uh, so those are probably the two most important things. And then the third uh, thing that we ask in in early stage companies is is around timing. So a lot of times we see uh, we see companies that are going after spaces, for instance, that have been really resistant to. to 
uh, adopt new tech solutions in the past. So if you're building for a market like that, then we ask, you know, why now? Is there some kind of uh, catalyst that is going to um, create change or create a change in attitudes and create some kind of urgency for your buyer to go out and say, yes, I'm going to buy this solution? Because in, in general, it's not easy to create a product and it's definitely not easy to sell that product and build credibility with customers when you're when you're just starting out. So you have to be solving a problem that's really dire for them or there has to be some kind of outside reason why they absolutely need what you're what you're buying and we want to see like a really strong um strong why now around uh around the market or or the product that you're building so those are probably the things we care about the most in terms of an approach um i i'm of the mindset uh i i think uh you know preparation meets opportunity is probably my approach i have you know ideas that i'm interested in and uh but at the same time, I don't want to be limited to to particular theses er, thesis areas, uh, because ultimately, at the early stage, it's the founders that are doing all the, all of the innovation, and I don't want to say, oh, I'm interested in X, and this is the right approach, when it's really the founders that probably uh, are the best suited to make make those decisions. And so, I want to make sure that I'm following where the best founders are going. And so, I, I like to be informed on spaces, but I also don't want that to limit uh, the areas that I'm looking at. Makes sense. And if I may ask a follow-up questions, would you have different sets of advice for someone who's, say, like coming from an MBA background or a Wharton MBA trying to start their own company? What advice do you have for them when they're trying to pitch themselves in front of venture capitals like Redpoint Ventures? Yeah, I think it comes back to the points that I, I said, uh, you know, we're looking for the... Um, the one thing that I see a lot of founders make a mistake about early on is they don't realize, I, th I think a lot of founders don't realize the kind, like what makes a good venture scale business. There are many different ways of starting and building a successful company and very few of those actually involve venture funding. If you are looking for venture funding, you're, you're, you have to paint the picture of why this is a venture scale business and a venture scale business just to make the economics work is something that has probably potential to to get to hundreds of millions in revenue and billions of dollars uh, worth of enterprise value or market cap. So uh, you have to be going after really large markets and tackling large opportunities within those markets to be able to justify uh, the venture route. And you have to be you have to be willing to kind of put yourself on a path and. Uh, and, and take the intensity that comes with trying to build a company like that. So uh, that's probably one area that I would I would advise founders to spend time thinking about is are we what is the opportunity that we're really going after and are we trying to build a venture scale business or or a different kind of business which is as good of a path but um, and can lead to very successful outcomes as well. Gotcha. And then you mentioned like there are a couple areas or like ideas you're following, like very um, kind of following what's going on. Like, can you share with maybe with us like a couple ideas that you're currently passionate about these days? Yeah. So uh, these days I'm spending a lot of time in vertical SaaS. Uh, what, what we talk about as vertical SaaS is uh, software that's being built uh, for a specific vertical. It could be something like logistics or construction or trucking or healthcare, uh, pharmaceuticals, um, Etc. But 
uh, this idea that you can go after these industries that are traditionally are underserved by technology. Uh, they, you know, if you look at the GDP of the U.S., the, some of these industries are probably uh, worth billions, if not trillions, of dollars, or hundreds of billions, if not trillions, and. Uh, Yet their software spend tends to be uh, very either very low or it's concentrated in uh, very legacy uh, incumbents. And so um, the idea, I'm interested in vertical SaaS that's going after some of these industries and trying to display some of those incumbents and bring more modern technology uh, into, into those industries. So that's an area that I'm spending a lot of time in. And some of the ideas uh, within that that we find interesting is either you can start... Uh, you can go after workflows and create kind of an operating system for the business. You can start by uh, creating some kind of marketplace to facilitate transactions. Uh, you could create embedded finance flows so you can start to capitalize on the payments opportunities within those industries in some way or the other. Uh, but those are the kinds of opportunities that are getting me excited these days. Gotcha. And then within vertical SaaS, I think a common kind of question people think about is, how big the market size really is for specific verticals. And then you mentioned for certain verticals, people are using very legacy solutions. Um, so curious, like within vertical SaaS, what are like the two or three verticals that you see there's some certain kind of catalyst happening that's making a change and pushing people to make a sh swift or you feel like there's a lot of like undervalued market opportunity out there? Yeah, one of the areas that uh, I've been spending time in recently is um, logistics, freight, and shipping generally. Um, and there's a there's also a distinction, by the way, because uh, like if you look at the top line of some of these industries, uh, companies spend billions of dollars. Like uh, I think freight itself is maybe an eight hundred billion dollar market in the U.S., but that's not the market that we're actually going after. It's a, you have to draw a distinction because that's the Unless you're starting a freight company, you're not going after that market. The market you're actually going after is probably like one to two percent of that because you're you're trying to sell software into those companies. So that's an important distinction. So we do look for uh, markets that have uh, large existing software spend and that that you know an incumbent uh, that that these companies can go after. One of the things that gets us excited about about uh, the freight space is the kinds of changes that we've been seeing. So. Uh, Flexport is uh, a, a broker, a, a tech-enabled broker that's come into the market uh, a few, I, late 2015, 2016, I believe. And at this point, they've kind of changed. Um, they've made such an impact on the market that it changed shipper expectations um, for where um, shipper expectations for for how the visibility that that companies want into their freight and for the digital interfaces that these carriers which are the trucking companies need to need to have in order to give shippers, which is the the companies that are shipping things. Um, and so, because Flexport has has raised the standards of digitization in the industry, we're seeing that the long tail of uh, of brokers will have a hard time competing. And so, that's kind of an interesting shift that's happening in the industry, where now you can start to invest in in software that's going to help that long tail of uh, of brokers compete. So that's an interesting like shift that we've seen in a very large industry where we think, you know, there it creates opportunity for and and creates urgency for for historically um um you know pen and paper operators or 
to to like adopt more technology. So so that's that's one example of of something that's that's getting us excited. The other interesting thing in the, in the tracking space is you have these ELD mandates, which uh, require that vehicles regulations in general can be another big catalyst for change. And so the ELD mandates uh, required vehicles to have these IoT devices that would track and send data on where the vehicle was. And so because of these ELD mandates, that created a tailwind for companies like Samsara because they were selling those devices uh, to then grow on those uh, tailwinds and uh, and become large companies. So those are regulations is another interesting uh, potential catalyst for change. Um, so those are some of the examples of of things that you know we've seen that create opportunity. This summer when I'm doing an internship, I've been looking at certain industries and definitely to your point, without either like regulatory change or like major trend shifting, sometimes it's hard for people just to move off those like pen and paper or like Excel spreadsheet. Um, and then another kind of interesting trend going on is the concept of vertical AI. You know, I'm going to be that person who bring up generative AI in this conversation. Um, there are a lot of like VCs now talking about implementing AI uh, for specific vertical use cases, for example, like law firm. Um, curious to hear about like your perspective on like on the implementation of AI within like vertical SaaS. Do you think like existing vertical SaaS companies are going to be interested in implementing these technologies, or do you feel like that's going to be a synergy to bring a new group of startups who's kind of um, kind of the kind of the genetic is more coming from an AI gene? Yeah, I mean, I think it can be both. We've already seen a lot of incumbents um, introduce AI into their solution. So, uh, for instance, we spent a lot of time looking into financial research and how the job of a finance, um, like a, a person that works at a hedge fund or some kind of some other kind of investor, how does their job change now that you have AI and you can use AI to go out and gather uh, to help you with with the research that you're doing to help you generate financial models more easily and all of and or even generate an investment memo for instance so all of that rote work that uh that you do as a financial analyst can now be augmented by ai and we've seen some of the incumbents like um the the bloombergs of the world have have also gone after this opportunity for instance uh bloomberg launched uh bloomberg gpt which is their own llm that's trained on all of the data on company data on bloomberg so we've seen incumbents like that adopt very quickly because one because i think they recognize that ai could be an existential threat for their businesses and second because ai like unlike previous uh platform shifts like this it's been relatively easy for incumbents to incorporate ai in their products i think the bottleneck is finding good talent uh and a lot of times good talent would rather go and join a startup than go and work at a crusty old incumbent for instance so I mean I think we'll see we'll see opportunities for both the incumbents and and the startups in the startup category we've seen um, AI making its way through a lot of different verticals like the ones you mentioned like legal finance um, uh, marketing um, trucking we just made an investment in a company that's that's going after that so I, I think AI the other impact that AI has had is that it's um, it's changed the um, the go-to-market a little bit. So, for instance, we've seen a number of companies that are using Gen AI to create websites. And that in itself, I don't think, is is a big company, but you can now use that as a wedge product to build something really great on the back end. 
And you can use that as a very easy acquisition hook uh, to, to sell into, uh, for instance, if you're selling into services businesses or if you're s- selling into small companies, typically it's very, very difficult to go after and acquire these, these companies that are in a, in a cost-effective manner. But now if you have such an easy, like a hook product that is so easy to sell and it's so easy to build, you could you could start to use things like that as go to market hacks um, to ultimately uh, to then build a deeper product uh, on on the back of. We're at an all time high in terms of uh, willingness to pay and to try new solutions, especially if they have AI. And I think we'll see a lot of uh, technologies that will come in and uh, take away much of that rote uh, work that that we have to do uh, and. And I think we'll just see the barriers to adoption for for technology becoming lower and lower because Gen AI makes it so easy. Yeah, for sure. And I feel like this year is definitely the year of Gen AI with with like the technology evolving almost like every single day. Um, And I feel like venture capital sometimes in the industry that that can lead one to subscribe to a trend or like follow the crowd. Uh, What are some of the measures you take to check yourself and then maintain a sense of groundness when you look at investment opportunities or you, when you make investment decisions? Uh, that's such a good question. It's also a very difficult one to answer. I'm not sure if I've quite mastered it. Um, I definitely haven't. But um, I think ultimately you have to, like once you make enough bets, you realize that th- this is a company that you're committing to spending the rest of your life with our I mean, not the rest of your life but you know you're making a pretty deep commitment to uh to this company and so regardless of what everyone else in the industry is saying you are the one who has to you know either sit on the board or uh or work with that company for for the years to come and so maybe one good way of looking at it is uh like if you ask yourself the question you know would i join this company would i uh would i join this company as an early hire if the, if the answer to that question is is a yes, then there's probably something there that goes beyond uh, the noise that you're hearing in the market that probably has shows some kind of personal conviction in uh, in whatever they're doing. Um, but in general, I think it's it's very difficult to uh, to not follow the crowd. Gotcha. Uh, yeah, I, I think a lot of people have this great metaphor saying like, when a venture capitalist invests in a company, it's almost like getting married. Because you are committing to this company for, if you're involved in early stage, at like at least like around ten years um, before you make some sort of exit. Yeah, and I mean there is um, th- there's a practical reason too why there is there you tend to end up in a herd mentality just because once you invest in a company, you're not the only, you're often not the first or the last investor on the cap table. You have to think about follow on rounds for the company, and in general, if it's a market that is that. Uh, people are excited about it's easier for the company to raise follow-on rounds of funding uh, and if and if it's again if it's if it's something that that customers are excited about it'll be easier for them to sell so you can cruise that uh, that excitement uh, and it it's genuinely helpful to companies in terms of uh, you know raising money and also uh, making money uh, to have those tailwinds behind them so I mean, there are some reasons why you end up, why that then leads you into this herd mentality. But uh, yeah, as you're saying, I think it's important to find ways to resist that. Gotcha. Um, yeah, and then just switching the topic a little bit. Um, it's like really 
fascinating and amazing experience for me to talk to like a female in that investor in the field, uh, especially for something like venture capital, which is traditionally known as a more male-dominated industry. Um, as an insider now, can you maybe share a little bit more about how, how does it feel like to be a woman in the industry and then what kind of advice you have for like female, aspiring female investors? Yeah, uh, I mean, I think I've been lucky actually because at uh, my team at Redpoint is actually 50-50 women, which is a rarity in, in venture. And wow. uh, so I, I think thankfully have been shielded from a lot of what other women have had to face. I, I have a lot of friends who are even, uh, I, I've come across a lot of people in the industry who've been the first women on their team. And I think that's a load or burden that's like, is not something that uh, that's easy to handle. Um, but in general, what I found is that the attitudes towards women in the industry are very supportive. I know the reality doesn't reflect it yet, but I see a lot of uh, desire at least to to create more space for women. And I'm, I see it talked about more and more frequently. Uh, LPs want to invest in women uh, funders and companies, CEOs, a lot of times want women on their boards and they're making active efforts to do that. And then I have a lot of company founders as well who are saying that I want my next hire to be to be a woman. I'm only going to talk to women candidates for this role. So um, I think that attitudes are changing. We have yet to see it in the results, but uh, what I'm seeing, I'm encouraged by. That's great. I mean, that's great to hear about like RepPoint. Uh, it's kind of like pioneering within the industry. Do you feel like this half and half split uh, in, within gender bring like a unique perspective when you guys make an investment decision? Um, definitely. I mean, I, I'm not sure it comes across necessarily in terms of like investment decisions. Ultimately, I think that's more a reflection of your backgrounds and how you think about companies um, um, and what like what your biases end up being. But um, I think it generally it definitely reflects itself in the culture of the team. Um, and I think more importantly, it makes us makes it much easier for us to hire the next woman because, uh, you know, they don't have to be the first and uh, they, they've seen other women in the fund be successful before them. So uh, I think it changes the culture more so than our maybe our investment process or maybe it changes the investment thinking in ways that are so subtle that I haven't quite been able to put a finger on it. Um, or I guess this has been my reality the whole time I've been in venture. So I'm not quite sure what it would look like otherwise. So I'm sure it's changed us in some ways that are, are imperceptible to me almost. That's awesome. And I do hope we are on the path that this type of more inclusive environment is going to be more prevalent in industry going forward. I guess we wanted to do a quick lightning round to wrap up. I'm going to ask a few questions and I'll challenge you to answer with as short of answer as possible. Um, so question one is, who is your favorite investor? Outside of people at Redpoint, uh, Fred Wilson is someone I've been following for a long time. And I really like his clarity of thought and his writings. And I think he's been really prescient on, on a lot of things like uh, crypto and the climate. So I'm a fan. Gotcha. And question number two is, what kind of investor do you aspire to be? Uh, I want to be an empathetic investor i want to be uh helpful to my founders and i but ultimately i i want to invest i i want to invest in the best companies and i want to be very shrewd when it comes to thinking about you know wh what's going to change the world tomorrow 
and get behind those companies. That's an amazing answer. Well, it's been a fascinating conversation with you, Urvashi. Like, I definitely learned a lot from our conversation. I'm sure our listeners would equally enjoy. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time again. And yeah, uh, really appreciate it. Amazing. Thanks for having me, Zoe. This was a great conversation. I hope it's uh, useful to people at Warden. Um, I'm always here if anyone needs me. But thanks for doing this. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review and give us a follow on social media. We appreciate the support and hope that you'll continue to spread the word to more listeners. If you'd like to keep up with all the content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Medium at Wharton Fintech, where we'll be able to find articles, interviews, and much more analyzing all aspects of the fintech industry. As always, thank you to our editor, Rafael Austria. And until next time, this is your host, Zoe.